0: Uh, the rest of you can open up to the book of Romans, go to the very last page, or swipe to the very last chapter, depending on what you're using for a Bible. And this morning, I want us to kind of zoom in and ponder three words. And these three words just emerge from the text and um, really interact with each other in some really interesting ways. In fact, I would say they're a good summary for life as a whole, not life for Christians, not life for churchgoers, not life for those seeking after God, but just life. Um, Think about the word welcome for a minute. Every single person you ever lay eyes on emerges from the womb looking for someone looking for them. Like we are wired for connection. A baby comes out and they are looking for mom. And this never ends. Go watch your grandma. Next time she enters a room, she comes down the stairs, whatever. She's going to walk in and she's going to do what you do. Her eyes are going to scan. We are looking for someone, looking for us. I was aware of this this morning as I sort of stood in the back. That's how we enter a place. We are wired for a connection. It's a human Design that God gave us. How about the word warning? Uh, Life is far more wonderful than we can ever imagine, and God lets us in on that, but it's also far more scary than we ever imagine. And this is true for all people as well. There's sort of a naivete to youth, isn't there? And then there are some shocking things that go on when you realize, uh, some younger than others, that the world isn't just a safe, cozy place all the time. And finally, we are all unceasing worshipers. You can't help yourself but worship. And so worship, welcome, and warning are all connected. Let me show you this in one really powerful, simple verse. Colossians chapter 113 reads this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, You see that something really solemn and serious is afoot. There's someone dark and ominous prowling, and there is someone powerful and good who is winning. I showed you this earlier in our series, but probably the most famous verse in the Bible, at least in America, thanks to football games on Sunday, is John 3.16. What I want you to do is I want you to look at all of the welcome and warning that is going on in this passage. Side by side in Scripture and linked together is welcome and warning. All the words of welcome are in red. Whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever believed, whoever believes, that's an invitation. It's one of our best invitation uh, verses, right? John 3.16, that the gospel is available to everyone. But do you see all the warning in there? condemnation, and wrath. Whoever does not obey, these are the things that await you, and the word perish is in there. Church is all about this. Welcome and warning, warning and welcome, and worship sort of woven in through all of that together. We know as a church body that relationship and acknowledgement and warmth is what we're to be characterized by, that we're grateful. I just had a conversation this morning. Uh, as time is winding down for his family to, to move, you guys keep disobeying the command of your pastor not to be moving, but you guys keep moving. Um, we just acknowledge to one another, man, there's, a, there's, a, there's an added sense of gratitude knowing there's a final day coming when it does change when someone moves and you're not just in our midst all the time. We say regularly from the front, and we try to think and remind ourselves that we're more interconnected than we could possibly imagine, that every single person in this family matters the world to the family. The whole idea of warning, again, Christians know this, life is hard. The world is cursed. Sin is crouching deceivers are active the slope that we climb is slippery we are at war and we have a powerful opponent and how about worship we find ourselves once we find ourselves in God one of the things we do in this church is we try to diligently expose the little idols of our heart again we're unceasing worshipers if we don't worship God we worship someone else or something else right It could be celebrity. It could be sort of a nebulous sense of power or wealth or enough or comfort or security or just serving ourselves. Building for ourselves a comfortable life that pleases us. You hear echoes of these three words in one of our favorite sayings around here, which is come as you are, but don't stay that way. Everyone is welcome to come to NBC, but we're hiking, we're going somewhere. And you know what? You don't last very long at this church. I think if you want to come and, and just kind of hang out, we, we don't lend ourselves to that. There's a hiking club next door, which, if your middle school is called John Muir Middle School, you better have a hiking club, right? And so I've had various of my kids be on the hiking club, and I would go and on the hikes with kids. And once in a while, it's just these kids were shocked that we're walking up a hill in the dirt in the sun. And, and I thought, man, that's, that's perfect. You know, this is really funny. I mean, hiking club is a lousy club for couch potatoes, right? I was thinking about NBC. NBC is a lousy church for pew potatoes. Like, if you just want to come and hang out, you just won't like it here that much. So let's just get that straight up front. Paul's closing words in Romans are applicable, hear me, at least every Sunday. I really think that welcome and warning and worship like r- weave throughout our entire week, every week. But at least every Sunday we will see these truths. So we've had this little tradition that we started uh, with this series where at the, at the end of the passage, uh, at the end of the message, most messages, we would sort of just clearly lay out what, what does God do? What is God teaching us that is on his shoulders to do, and, and is there a, a, an action for us to do? Is there something we're supposed to do with this? And it's really good as you read the scriptures. It's really good as you just live your life and interpret the events of your life. Is there something I'm supposed to be doing? Is there something God is, has promised? It's true, isn't it, that if we believe uh, the promises of God, our lives change. If we live according to those. We also sometimes put on God things he never promised us. And as we grow and learn and read the scriptures ourselves, sometimes it's the church family that comes along and says, God didn't promise you that. That's not what this is all about. And if we ever find ourselves in the position of trying to accomplish what God can only accomplish, we will be in a cul-de-sac of frustration that never ends. Here's a classic one. Probably one of the biggest things on my heart, and my kids know this. I tell them this explicitly. I don't wish for them lots of letters beyond their name. I don't really care about their bank account. I don't care about their station in life. Like, my biggest driving passion, it's way up here and everything else is way down here, is that they would fall in love with Jesus, see his beauty, receive what he's done for them, and and walk with him and and serve him and be in relationship with him the rest of their life. Now, can I do that as a parent? I can't. I can't save my kids. I can't make that happen. So you can see the frustration that would occur if I am trying to make something happen that I don't have the capability of doing. So as we read Scripture, as we've we've read Romans, it's really important to get these two things um, clarified in our minds. For the final sermon, here's the deal. The three points of your sermon outline are these things right here. We're just going to look at what God does and what we do in response to it, okay? So here we go. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 17, and I'm just going to read this in three chunks this morning instead of all at once, but I'll read it straight through. Romans 17 through 20 says this, "'I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught.'" avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So at least every Sunday, God is graciously providing a warning. At least every Sunday, I will heed the warning. You see God's part? God's part is to say, look out. I'm the one who sees all things. I'm the one who's outside of time. I can tell you what to watch out for. Our role is to heed the warning. If you want to stir a fire in a parent or a pastor, mess with the kids, threaten the sheep. You can take the most mild-mannered mom or dad, and if their child is somehow under threat or in danger or perceived that way by mom or dad, how does that go? Bad for the person messing with the kids, right? You actually find things stirred up in you that you didn't even know were there. It's the same for a shepherd, a pastor, and the flock of God. That, that you see someone coming in and threatening, and there's a, a flare-up. Paul makes three appeals here. To be vigilant, he appeals for separation, and he appeals for discernment. This is the warning. So be vigilant. Stay awake, Keep your eye on them. Look out for these deceivers. We've said this before, but life is playoff hockey. It's not a stroll in the park, right? You're not just walking along and you're shocked that someone, pow, comes and body checks you. If you're playing playoff hockey, you recognize, I need to grow a beard and I need to be putting pads on and I need to keep my head up because there's an opponent to what I'm trying to accomplish in this life. Someone recently became a member in... They said to me, they said, man, I had no idea how much Satan would be pulling at me in fresh and loud and profound ways as I'm taking steps to reach toward God and and move closer to God. Isn't that life? That's the way it goes. We have an enemy, so be vigilant. Now, it's not the absence of division or obstacles. You see, the, the cross is an obstacle for us, isn't it? The cross is an obstacle for Christians. We have to re-remind ourselves why we just celebrated the death and burial of Jesus. It's because of resurrection. It's because that was God crushing Satan in this apparent moment of weakness. So it's not the removal of all divisions. We're going to have that. We're fleshly people that struggle with things. But it's divisions and obstacles that are put in people's place that are contrary to doctrine, contrary to sound teaching. So by implication, it means this. Church, hear me. Read your Bible. Don't read my lips. Read your Bible. And then keep reading your Bible. I don't know if you catch this, but in this passage, you're actually going to hear little snippets of Jesus' teaching. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. What, is, what teaching of Jesus does that sound like about doves and serpents, right? Shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. I hope that your speech and your thoughts are just seasoned by Scripture without even knowing. You don't need to quote a Bible verse every time you say it. You're just reading it and your mind is being washed and rewashed and rewashed such that what happens is you can kind of sniff out, wait a minute, that's not according to sound doctrine. I don't know chapter and verse, but I just have a sense That's, that's not, that sounds, something seems off with that. So, if someone is putting an obstacle or a division that is contrary to sound doctrine, it presupposes that there better be more than a few elders of the church that know doctrine. That's the role of us as a community, as the church. We've all been on this journey through Romans, and we'll keep teaching the Bible. People who cause and create problems for the family do not have the Lord Jesus as their master. They have themselves. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, the tree is known by its fruit. Would you agree with me that um, not all great teaching is great? There's many people who say, oh, you gotta gotta listen to this person. This person's awesome. You gotta read this book. This is a great book. Paul gives a couple of really clear pictures here. One is flattery. You know what flattery is? Flattery is a positive-sounding lie that sort of manipulates people who need acceptance. And it preys on that. It's the tickling of ears. It's preaching messages that basically uh, use a person's sinful nature against them. And in return, it elevates, it puffs up the teacher to get a whole bunch of attaboys after a sermon, after a book, after a speaking engagement. Smooth speech is all around us. Smooth speech tastes really good going down, but two things happen. One is there's, there's no nutrients to it. So it's a little bit like eating, uh, you know, I don't know, like a churro or something. I don't know, what's air light and air, like styrofoam. It's basically like eating styrofoam that's filled with, yeah, churro. churro. Uh, yeah, this, that has sugar and cinnamon on it. That's what it is. So it's not nutritious. There's nothing to it. So, so you, you kind of, it tastes good going down, but it doesn't really sustain you. It probably doesn't energize you or strengthen you or establish you at all. And sometimes smooth speech goes down really smooth, but it it turns sour in your stomach as well. And as you begin to build your life on that, that's that's a bad place to be. Paul invited people to inspect his words and his deeds. We saw that in, in Romans 15 verse 17. And so should you. You should pay attention. Whoever you're trusting in this life. Whether that be a parent, a teacher, a boss, a mentor, someone in your life that you go, man, I want to be like them. They they have these words that come. You ought to listen carefully to the sermon that their life is preaching, not just the words coming out of their mouth. Some of you are very discerning about this. Uh, Many people are not. I I don't need to go any further than to look at our political landscape. I'm not sure when it changed, but it used to be you cover up the immorality of our of our leaders of our nation. Because if they can't control their own body, who cares what they say? Is that out the window? Yeah. That that is long gone, isn't it? We've somehow separated and said it doesn't really matter what the sermon of their life is teaching, they're really good at talking. Yeah, they're politicians. They're kind of known for smooth talking and flattery. That we would be on our guard and be vigilant to pay attention. So, what are we to do with them? Some of you have just exceeding amounts of grace and love, and I love you for that. But you'll wrestle with this. You'll say, aren't we supposed to just love everyone? Aren't we supposed to treat everyone the same? Aren't we supposed to be accepting Yes, but there are qualifiers, right? What does Paul say with these deceivers? He says, avoid them. So be vigilant. Be on the lookout. If you're skating with the puck, keep your head up. There are people out to take you down. And then take decisive action. Avoid them. Lean away. Don't let their carnal ways rub off on you. Rebuke them by your distance. Now there's a little confusion as to who these false teachers were. Why doesn't Paul say just excommunicate them? Are these wolves that are in amongst the sheep? I would lean towards no, or else he would have just said, man, throw those people out of the church. He has no problem saying that elsewhere. I think these are Christians who are living with a carnality, and they have things that God's still working on them, but they're infecting the church with division. They're putting stumbling blocks in the way. And so he says, lean away from them. Don't you let them rub off on you. Again, rebuke them by your distance to them. Jesus said some words in the Sermon on the Mount that invite not only self-reflection, but others' reflection. He said, many people will say, we did all this great, amazing stuff. And then Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So here's the instruction. Get close to those who are close to Jesus as evidenced by their life. Let me say it again. Get close to those who are close to Jesus as evidenced by their life. The only way to do that is to spend time with each other, right, is to be family. What you're doing right now is vitally important because you're coming to a family gathering. You're getting to know your siblings by worshiping with them uh, each and every week. All right, so be vigilant, take decisive action, and then he also says to pay attention. We are to grow up in discernment. This is a muscle that can be exercised. You see in verse 19 that Paul's pleased with them. He says he rejoices over their rightful reputation of obedience, and yet he urges them on to greater holiness. Be experts in good. Don't even be beginners at evil. You are what you pay attention to. Isn't it interesting to, to realize there are entire TV series and movie franchises around these themes? Stealing. Greed, drug culture, gang life, dark spiritual powers, corrupt politician, sleazy scheming to get one's way. And the more blood and betrayal and skin, the better the show seems to do. Be ignorant. Be innocent. Be unsophisticated. Don't be in the know. Have no time for that by giving no time for that. I would hope that there are whole songs that you have no idea how the chorus and second verse go because by that first verse, you're like, whoop, nope, not going to listen to that. We don't need that going in the brain. Anyone older than junior high, isn't it powerful how you can hear a song from junior high having not heard it in however old you are and yet sing along with it? And what's more feel the emotions you felt with that song. And music is powerful, powerful stuff. I hope there are whole songs you go, yep, I know the first line of that. In fact, now I know the beat and I don't even remember the, like, you just turn it. As a youth pastor, it was always fascinating to me. We'd be driving along in a van and I would often give, everyone in the van had, uh, if it was a long trip, they got to pick an entire album. We used to think in terms of albums, a collection of 10 songs that all sort of had a theme. Now we don't think that way. But we'd give one kid, you get to pick the album, and they would play it, and we'd play it through our, our iPod or, you know, through a tape deck adapter, through whatever we were doing. And there, and there was always this conversation oh, we probably shouldn't play that song or that album on this trip. What's the, what, what's the thought behind that? We're on a youth trip for church camp. We're going on a missions trip to serve Jesus. Therefore, we shouldn't play this song in this setting. Isn't this just a perfect teaching opportunity for a youth pastor? So I'm driving along, and I'm hearing the conversation, and I go, wait a minute. Is Jesus with you when you're not on a church trip? Does Jesus live outside of a white van? He does. If it's not appropriate here, when would it ever be appropriate? Think about that. Be innocent of those songs. Let's go to movies for a second. There was a sense as a youth pastor that you wanted to keep up with youth culture. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. But here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean I need to go watch every movie that the kids are watching. You know why? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Kids watch all kinds of garbage. So do adults. (laughs) You know what I do a lot, even today? I watch a lot of trailers. A trailer is a two-minute snippet that gives you the sense of a movie. There are whole movies. You only need to see the name and the cover, the the movie poster. And you go, yep, I I need to be innocent of that. In fact, you could take great pride before the Lord and just say, God, thank you that I don't have a clue about what people are talking about around this. But a movie trailer is a good way to say, yeah, okay, I get, I get what people are talking about, but keep ourselves innocent of evil. You give two hours to your life at a movie that's going to train you in worldliness, Let me tell you, choose to save your money. Choose to save your time. Choose to save your soul. If the eye is darkened, the whole body is darkened. Guard yourselves. And by all means, be careful little feet where you go. Remember that little kid song? And you watch where you go. You go to places in full view of God. With this whole idea of discernment you know biblical preaching gets a lot of spotlight which is good you ought to be thinking if you're planning on moving to you ought to be thinking if and when i move and go to a different church i want a church that that i need to bring my bible to i want a church that opens the bible and teaches from the bible even imperfectly even stammering along and maybe not getting it not maybe not getting everything right I want biblical preaching. That's a good thing to spotlight. But here's what doesn't get a lot of spotlight. Biblical listening. Communication's always a two-way street. You can have the best teaching in the world. If you're not listening biblically, it doesn't matter. You could say the most accurate instructions. If your spouse is not listening, it doesn't matter. We need good communication that flows this way and good communication that flows into the ears and into the heart. Discernment is is a muscle to be exercised. There's two kinds of obedience. There's blind obedience and discerning obedience. You, church, are called to the latter. You are called. If your answer every single time is... As to why you do or don't do something is because uh, my youth pastor said that, or my pastor said that, or this great blog that I read said that, you're in danger. Because what you're doing is you're letting someone else eat the meal, digest it, and they're a mediator between God and you. Do you see that? We get to have unmediated intimacy with, with God, we all get to read the Bible. All right, let me move on. At least every Sunday, heed the warning. By the way, at least every Sunday, you ought to be hearing some warning in here. There's one person in this room. I won't call him out. But he once in a while compliments me. He says, you know why I like our church, Dave? I say, because of me? He goes, no. <laughs> no, I don't really say that. That's why I think sometimes. That's sinful. Uh, he says, you know why I like our church? I like our church because you use the word sin. I like our church because you use the word wrath. I like the, 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 this church because it, it, talks, it talks things about as, as they are. It doesn't try to soften it, and I need that. This is a mature believer who reads his Bible. He says, "I want that. I need the warning." So I don't try to look for this. I don't. Even, I don't have a clue how to warn you guys. God does. So that's why preaching the Bible just—you're going to hear warnings every week. Listen for them and heed the warning. Do you see why I say at least every Sunday, but this is way beyond Sunday? I hope in your quiet time on Wednesday, your quiet time isn't so quiet. I hope it's disruptive. And you go, whoa, that's showing me something that has to change now. And so you heed the warning that you get. All right, at least every Sunday, heed the warning of what you are learning and seeing lived out. And now we move on to the word welcome. Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Church is about relationships. At least every Sunday, I will give and receive welcome at least every Sunday. And by the way, we love because he first loved us. So we follow his lead in love, and we love in kind. Again, until you reach the level of welcoming as Jesus did, keep working at it. By God's grace, say, God, grow me up in this. Expand my vision of how to to welcome really, really well Communication is the lifeblood that keeps relationships going. If it were a car, it's the fuel. Without it, relationships die. One could gauge your family temperature and health by its communication, the quality of the communication, the amount of communication, or lack thereof. Let me ask you a couple of sort of diagnostic questions. Ready? The last time I had a meaningful conversation with my spouse, my child, my parent, my siblings was, and you fill in the blank. The last time I received words of affirmation and meaningful appreciation for no apparent reason was blank. The last time I gave words of appreciation or meaningful affirmation for no apparent reason was How about this one? The last disagreement that we had was resolved in a blank way. Healthy, unhealthy, dismissive, tender-hearted, thorough, partial, whatever you fill in the blank. And lastly, the last time I repented and sought forgiveness from a family member was blank. These were very quickly off the top of my head. We could, we could make a list of a hundred of these, couldn't we? And I promise you, it would begin to undress you a little bit. You would begin to feel kind of naked and ashamed as you hear more and more of this and go, God have mercy on my family. Communication is the lifeblood to our relationships, the quality of it. The church of God is a family. The similarities are obvious, friends. We saw two weeks ago when Jim preached that Paul sent personal greetings to 26 individuals, and now he passes on personal messages from eight named people who are with him. He's in Corinth writing to a church he has yet to get to in Rome. So now he names these eight people. Paul models what he teaches. God's the hero of the story, and we are thrilled just to be invited to join in. And all these supporting cast members that are there, they're not doing Paul a favor, they're worshiping a savior. I want you to hear this really clearly because this is what's on the forefront of my mind. Whenever I thank you for doing something around the church, I don't think you're doing me a favor. I think you're worshiping your Savior. That's the motivation I see when you're doing something. I pulled in, much to my delight, and this is a normal scene. I pulled up, and much to my delight, there is a friend of mine, a church member of ours, picking up trash so you don't have to look at the trash. You know what they're doing? They're serving Jesus. They're actually serving their unsaved neighbors across the street who leave the trash because people park here and they trash the church. And so he's just serving them. I don't know that he does this, but I hope he prays for that trash. Not really for the trash, for the people who last touched the trash. God, people who once trashed the church, by your grace, may someday come and serve the bride, may serve the church. Would you please let it start by just having them attend the church? and stop trashing it. That person is not doing me a favor. They're worshiping their Savior. And Paul got this, and he called it out. He takes time to mention by name a few. Let me just give a couple highlights. He mentions Timothy. Timothy is super well-known and prominent. Here's what I want to say. I don't want to say anything about Timothy. I want to point out that Timothy is named along two other names that we know almost nothing about. Here's what's really powerful about that. Body parts, right? There are visible body parts. Timothy is like his right-hand man. So you see a right hand a lot. It's doing all kinds of stuff. But to have a right hand go, there are little ligaments and tendons and veins. And you guys know this better than I do. Whatever's going on in there to make it happen, right? So he mentions Timothy that we see and know a lot about. And two other names in there that are vital to what's going on. Vital to the ministry. And only God really knows, but Paul has some intimate knowledge. And he's saying this, that each person matters and is important. He mentions Tertius. Tertius is this faithful scribe, and it's like he basically gets to insert, by the way, you know, Paul's been writing this whole thing. It's been from Paul's voice. But it's just this tender greeting, like, I greet you too. I'm here working with Paul. We're writing this. Um, but, but let me say, like, I personally am, am greeting you there at, at Romans as well. Here's what's really powerful about that. I am ministered to by books and seminars and YouTube pages and sermons and podcasts and video tools, and all of those have faithful and talented people behind the scenes that make the communication flow. I want to just say uh, to, to Jameson, put your hand up, Jameson, and to Greg in the back, can you guys thank our video and media team today? And, and one more that, that he's sitting back there. Trent, Trent is back there recording for us so that podcasts can happen, and many people make use of that as well. Let's clap for Trent, too. I feel bad now. <clears throat> They're just representatives, right? There's a whole team that, that do that, but there's also a team that does a whole bunch of other stuff that, that I don't even know about. It just goes on. And the point being that we... we um, we get to see people, again, a faithful scribe writing down, how cool would it be to, to be the one who, who wrote out Romans and got to work with Paul? That's a pretty cool role, right? And, and he has this one little tiny mention. Um, this, this person, Gaius, who, who opened his home, Erastus held an office, and Quartus was probably a, a, a slave. Tertius means third, by the way, and Quartus means fourth. So if you name slaves, you don't even take time to give them a proper name. I actually am thinking we might adopt this same method in our family. Um, I'll just call out, you know, what order you, you came to our family. Um, but, it, but it's powerful. Catch this. A guy who clearly had some wealth, if he's hosting the church... On his property, in his home, at his estate, a person who held city office and a slave. Do you see that mentioned side by side by side? Each one matters. Here's a big idea for you: our station in life, the titles we wear Monday through Friday, the blood that flows through our vein, the last name in our family lineage our ethnicity, our bank accounts, our zip codes, those all, it's not that they don't matter anymore, but they pale in comparison to the the fact that we're Christians, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The cross takes that stuff and and says, you're no longer slave and free. You're no longer male and female, Jew and Gentile. I don't want you to think in those labels anymore. Those are dividing lines that keep people warring. We're one in Christ. We've all been uh, wiped clean and, and, and made whole, and now here we are at the table of God. That's a powerful thing to see those three people listed side by side. Let me tell you for you, this doesn't happen on its own, but it's not complicated. If you show up every single week, and if you pray on Saturday, God, would you help me to worship you by welcoming well tomorrow, you plant that seed next Sunday, that will begin to bear fruit in some other season. Won't it? You just show up week after week after week. The Humphreys aren't here for the second week in a row. I know why they were missing both weeks because James made a point of telling me, hey, I'm gonna be at a different church today. There's a baby dedication going on. I said, two weeks in a row with the Humphreys not in their normal spot, what am I gonna do? You know what? That's a good sign, isn't it? It's a good sign that you're missed. That means you're here every single week. I tell you, it blesses my heart when I see people in the back. There are people I know, they make a point of coming and worshiping at one service, but staying through a second service, at least the first part, for no other reason than to serve other people that walk through the door. If it's a visitor that looks like they need a friend, they introduce themselves. If it's someone who's a sibling, they just go and greet them well and seek to minister to them. You see how it's not complicated, but it just takes consistency. It just takes showing up, and it takes having a mindset that says, God, how can I be a blessing to others? All right, at least every Sunday, I will give and receive welcome. By the way, here's a quick pride tip. If all you ever can do is meet the needs of people and serve other people and ask about them and bring foods to them and give to them, you know what's going on quite possibly? You're keeping people at arm's distance. One of those humbling things is to not just ask people, hey, how's your week doing? How's your marriage doing? How's your life doing? How's your temptation doing? But have someone else say, hey, can I pray for you? Or are you struggling? Are you struggling to hold on to the promises of God this week? Oh, let's keep talking about you. Hey, what, what if you need a meal? What if you need some time off? There can be a real pride thing to always be in the position of giving and never receiving. Some of you know, and God, God takes us to low places where we have to receive. And you know what he does? He takes that little dumb idol and he crushes it. Don't think you're the great servant and don't need, don't need help. You need help like anyone else. And I can't tell you enough, when you're the one flat on your back in the hospital and you're being visited, you know what it makes you? A better visitor of people flat on their back in the hospital. When you're the one without a job and without money and without means to buy groceries and that stuff shows up at your door, man, you, you are a better servant of other people when you go and do that. So God will break you. If you're only giving, giving, giving welcome and you don't know how to receive, ask God for the grace to receive as well. All right. At least every Sunday, I will give and receive welcome brings us to our last part of it. And this is the end of the sermon and the end of the letter. and I want you just to listen. Talk about just a high note, right? You think of like Handel's Messiah or something like. Just. Paul just ends this incredible letter with this sort of outburst of praise. Look at verse 25. It says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has now been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Because God is worthy of all praise, and I'll never reach the end of what I could say or sing or do or dance in response to that, at least every Sunday I will worship God. What is God's part in that? He just keeps being God. Forevermore and forever past. He is who he is. I want to just highlight a couple of things. This is the God who strengthens and establishes. Hear me for a second. If you are following in the footsteps of Jesus, you were once dead. As Colossians said, you were in the domain of darkness and you've been made alive. You were dead and now you're living and walking around in your new self. Dead people don't raise themselves. That's a work of God. So God started this work in you. He breathed faith into you and you responded and now you are alive and he will be faithful to keep building you up and to complete the work that he started. That's a promise that we can have and that we ought to abide by and walk in. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that it is work within us. And how does he do this? He does this by the gospel. That's his chosen means of strengthening you and establishing you. When you trust in God's plan of salvation, it settles your heart and your mind. Catch this. You are born naturally unstable in heart and mind. You have a heart that is is distracted and all over the place. He's the firm foundation that you build on. Secondly, that God's work centers on Jesus. If you take your Bible, two-thirds of it is the Old Testament. You know what the Old Testament does? The Old Testament points ahead to Messiah. Messiah. The Old Testament shows little pictures and sort of examples of what this Messiah is going to be like, but it's kind of cryptic. We don't really understand it. If you were just living life the way we're all forced to live life, which is called a day at a time, and you lived in that period, you don't see with, with nearly as much clarity. We say, oh, I wish, I wish I could hear from God. I wish I could have prophets that would come and speak the word of the Lord to me. You know what they would long for? They would long for the day and age we live in. The day and age when Messiah has come, Jesus has walked the earth, and we have clearly now, we can look back and say, that's how that all fits together and makes sense. So God is centering all work on Jesus. The New Testament, by the way, either describes his life, death, burial, resurrection, or it looks back on it. And the very last book of the Bible is forward-looking, on that day when Satan will be crushed and victory will occur when Jesus returns, so only the gospel that proclaims Jesus and has Jesus at its, various, uh, at its very center is the one that establishes and strengthens you. Remember the Galatians? Galatians, Paul says this Why are you so quick to believe a different gospel? Paul said this about himself, I'll say this about myself, if you ever hear me preaching good news, ways of salvation, ways to God that are somehow apart from Jesus as the center and circumference of everything I'm talking about, don't believe me. Paul says, let me be cursed if I preach anything but Jesus. The only gospel that saves is the gospel that preaches Jesus as the way to God. I want you just to listen. Maybe closing your eyes would be helpful. This helps me because I'm a distractible person. I want you just to listen to a partial list of the riches that we have in Christ that Paul has already laid out in this letter to the Romans. We have righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. We are justified as a gift of His grace through the redemption of, which is in Christ Jesus. We have righteousness, which will be reckoned to those who believe in Him, God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have been released from the law, having died to that to which we were bound, so that we can serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have life in the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. We have the Spirit's witness that we are God's children. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We are interceded for by the Spirit. And we cannot be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Open your eyes for a second. Friends, this is a partial list. We are infinitely wealthy in Christ. This is why any good pastor, any good parent, any good mentor is going to say, keep coming back to Jesus. Look at what you already have. Lastly, is that God is revealing this to all nations God had revealed in the prophets and predictions and creations and his actions in human history, but now is the time for clarity. Now in these last days, he's spoken most clearly and fully by stepping into a human body and walking this planet in Christ Jesus. And this good news is now understandable and available to all nations to bring about obedience of faith. We started with this idea of colossal truth as being uh, what Romans is about. That it makes these really bold claims. Every single person is ruined. Their mouth is shut. They are condemned. Whether they have the law or don't have the written law. Paul talks about the fact that all people, all time frames, all locations, all nations throughout history stand under that condemnation and are given forgiveness, are given life through Jesus Christ alone. These are colossal, sweeping truths. Paul started that this is for all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He ends with this praise to the only God who is all-wise, who is eternal, who is able... And he gives praise to him. Would you close your eyes for a minute? Just now we're going to allow music to kind of commingle with what we just heard from the word. And God, we pray that you would draw our hearts into intimacy with you. Even in this room full of people uh, and activity and sound. Would you allow us to just sort of have some space alone as it were with you. God, we open our lives to you because you are unbelievably good. God, you don't change. You see the beginning from the end. You're answering questions we didn't even know we had. God, you're doing works in us and exposing things in us stripping us away of false idols and we thank you for it even when it hurts we trust you we open our lives and our hearts to you now in Jesus name